Welcome to Artificially Intelligent Marketing, a weekly podcast where we stay on top of the latest trends, tips, and tools in the world of marketing AI, helping you get the best results from your marketing efforts. Now let's join our hosts, Paul Avery and Martin Broadhurst. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 33, all the threes, 33 of Artificially Intelligent Marketing. Uh, I am here, as always. But the most wonderful co-host in the world, Martin Broadhurst. Martino, how are we today? I'm good. I'm sat here in my new recording studio. I've got my double circle football pitch behind me. Uh, You'll only see this if you're watching on YouTube. I've got my Derby County Ram, which looks like it's been uh, put through the the blender a little bit. Life is good. That's supposed to be a Ram, is it? I think it is the, uh, the Derby Ram, yeah. I think uh, Dorley 3 needs a little bit of feedback uh, on that image, see if it might improve it. But uh, but it's a joy to see you in such a vibrant environment, Martin. Yes. Um, I'm all good. Um, It's Friday. We like Fridays. It's Friday, 17th of November. Um, Worth pointing that out because who knows what's going to happen between now and when this goes live, given all the changes that are happening at the moment, many of which we are going to cover today. Mike, so we've got so much stuff. We've got Runway's sort of motion painting tool, which looks really cool. We're going to dig into Copilot and some of Microsoft's announcements at their recent Ignite meeting. Um, we're going to be looking at the potential postponement of Gemini from Google, which we've all been waiting for. And now it sounds like we're going to have to wait a bit longer. We're going to talk about the generative search experience from Google being rolled out more widely in other countries and what that means for marketing folks. We're going to talk about a bunch of stuff related to YouTube. But today we are going to start by digging a little bit deeper into ChatGPT and the updates since the developer conference from OpenAI because Martin and I and the rest of the world have now had a chance to see what some of those updates mean and also to play with stuff and see what are the changes, what's better, what's not so good. We've been playing with GPTs. Are they this amazing game changer that we all kind of hope they're going to be? Like, where are they at right now? So that's where we're going to start. So Martin, let's talk a little bit about some of these chat GPT updates and what we've been experiencing in the real world. Yeah, well, it was a, it was a raft of them, wasn't it? It was a lot to keep up with. Um, we had an expanded context window. We had the reduced costs, uh, multimodal in one window, a new text to speech model, which I actually really, uh, like, uh, we've got assistance and the, uh, user friendly, or should I say the kind of consumer interface GPTs, um, and yeah, it's, so it's, it's been an absolute raft. Where do you want to start? Let's start with the context window, because I saw that some people have tried to do some initial studies on this. So the new context window is 128,000. Is that right? 128,000. Yeah, 128. um, which for those of you that listen to the podcast and know about our love of Claude will know that what that means is it gives you a huge amount of information that you can provide to ChatGPT as part of the conversation or all in one go to be able to then leverage. So for example, you could feed it a 300 page book and start asking questions about the book, ask it to summarize the book, et cetera, et cetera, which is game changing for a lot of applications. But I saw some studies, Martin, showing that after about 70,000 tokens, its ability to recall the information it's been given starts to degrade. So it might be 128K, but it's more likely to be 70,000 usable tokens. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. 
is this the same study that said it, it, it basically in the middle of the window actually it, it forgets things so the, it, what's at the start of the context that you give it and what's at the end of the context it can retrieve quite accurately but information that's in the middle it's a bit fuzzy and it's not very good at retrieving that which actually i think they'd found with a previous study with claude as well right yeah it, that's the same study and i think it's i think it's interesting and we were talking about this a bit off air our expectations of chat gpt and large language models is quite interestingly different to software products because if someone launched a software product and they said we can do this thing and then Firstly, the fact that a user would have to test it to see if it could actually do the thing. Um, you know, you gave an example off air about um, summing up um, a column in uh, in Excel and then checking it manually with a calculator to make it sure it actually was able to get the answer right. And if it didn't, one time in five, how you just not use it again. And yet, for some reason, we are quite happy to go check and validate these new capabilities of large language models. And then when they're not actually as good as we hope they would be, and they can't deliver on what they say, we use them and love them anyway, which is kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, so I think the takeaway on the context window is it's a massive upgrade on where we were with ChatGPT with its original context window, but it's not as good as what we might believe in terms of just how much information it can handle. And as you said, how you structure that information could influence the results you get mm. like if the it's going to miss stuff in the middle potentially of the documents that you share but for most users and most of the time the expanded window is hugely beneficial right so um meeting transcripts you can stick in a meeting transcript which would never have been possible in the previous context window whereas now you might throw it in and it might be thirty thousand tokens and it can handle that quite easily and I think for a lot of applications, people will be quite happy dealing with, you know, 20, 30,000 tokens rather than going all the way up to the 128, which, which is, you know, a nice to have. Um, I think that's only, is that only available in the, the API at the moment, the 128? Yes. Yeah, so every day I've been asking ChatGPT, what's your context window? And it's funny because we were talking about it. I realized I haven't asked it today. I just asked it and it fed back 4,000 tokens. So it looks like, at least for me, ChatGPT Plus is still stuck at the old context length. Oh, it's, I, I, have you actually tried sticking more in? Because I've, I've done quite a bit with expanded transcripts and it's gone, gone beyond. Maybe it's hallucinating that 4,000. Maybe. How interesting. Um, or it's like, don't test me too much. Maybe it's lying because it knows that it's going to be hard work. Yeah. And it's like, it's Friday, Paul. Why don't we just leave it at 4,000 tokens? Let's just call it there, shall we? But it's like, actually, no, I, I mean, I could do it. It's like all the Ethan Mollick experiments where it seems to me that at the end of most of his more complicated prompts, he now just puts as standard, don't worry, you can do this. Yeah. I, I was just going to say about the multimodal in one window, right? So... Now that we have all of the tools, we've got Code Interpreter, we've got Dali, we've got um, browse, browse with Bing, all in the same window. A lot of the time, trying to get it to do things that it would just do previously when you would select the tool you wanted. Now you have to really prompt it and give it a nudge and, um, and basically nag it and, or, or encourage it. You could see it the other way. Um, so yeah, you can do it. I believe in you. 
in order to get it to to get the output that you want, whether that's actually using a particular tool. So code interpreter is the one that quite often I'm having to say, oh no, you can do that. You just have to use code interpreter and then it will go off and do it. Um, do you know, it sounds like a moot point, but it's really not because I had a team member that was using um, Claude for a particular application uh, this week. And Claude did its thing that we've talked about previously where it came back and it went, oh, no, it sounds like sensitive material to me. I'm not sure I can help you out there. And of course, she stopped. She was like, oh, I think Claude's broken. It's down. It's not working. And I had to encourage her to try and find clever ways of convincing Claude to do the thing she wanted, um, which it shouldn't be that way. But if it is that way at the moment, people need to know that yeah. that's part of the process. Otherwise, they're just going to give up. Um, so if you're listening to this and you've used the tool and it tells you we can't do something you want it to do, don't take that as read. Think of a clever way to convince it to do it, including as simple as have a go. I'm pretty sure you can do this. And that can sometimes be enough to get you the, the result that you want. Yeah. Or to throw in some of the emotional manipulation that we spoke about on the previous episode. Tell it that it's really important for your career and uh, you might lose your job if it doesn't at least have a go. Yeah, that's um, yeah, and I wouldn't threaten it because we still don't know where the story <laughs> ends, right? Still want to be in Team AI. If uh, you know, I for one welcome our robot overlords. So uh, something to keep in mind. But uh, yeah, so the cat. I think the context window is an improvement. Um, in real time, now I just threw a, t a, con a transcript from one of our old podcasts in, and it was like, nah, no chance. Oh, really? Yeah, but you might you might have access to Turbo, and I don't. Um, it says, yeah, the message you submit was too long. Please reload the conversation and submit something shorter. So maybe they're rolling that out slowly. Um, let's talk about some of the other bits and pieces that we saw come out of ChatGPT then. So let's talk about costs because costs, if you use ChatGPT Plus, you're spending $20 a month, probably don't think too much about it. But if people are using the API to do interesting stuff, which I knew that you're a big fan of, Martin, they will obviously be paying for um, token usage. And some people have been running some interesting GPT-4 turbo tests, haven't they? What, I think you sent me a couple of WhatsApps about this. What did you see? Yeah, it's catching people out, right? The, the, the token cost has come down to a third of what it was previously. Um, it's about overall, if you take input and output tokens, it's about 2.7 times cheaper. I think that's what they said it worked out at. Um, but the problem is when you have this massive context window available to you, people tend to use that and that adds up in the input. And if you start having a back and forth conversation with the chat, every single input, every inference that you have, so every input prompt uses that 128K window if you're maximizing that length. And that ends up being about a dollar per query because it's one cent per thousand tokens so every input soon racks up and people have been landing themselves with just testing right just in a testing mode i saw one person got a 120 dollar bill uh, just while they were trying to hack together an assistant yeah like a day's worth of testing 120 dollar bill i've got a cap on mine of $30 for exactly this reason. If you're playing with the API, you probably learned this lesson the hard way like Martin just described. But if you haven't and you haven't got a cap, 
go put a cap on it mm. because um, GPT-4 Turbo is going to eat your money if you are sending it lots of stuff. The other thing is the um, multimodal in one window. So again, one of my team members was using the tool. Um, I made a suggestion for a prompt they could use to get an output they were looking for. And the the lady in question took a screen grab, sent it over to me. And um, she said, I don't really know why, but ChatGPT has produced an image because it just misunderstood the prompt. It went, oh, I know what I need for this Dolly 3 image. And I'm like, yeah, so therein lies the pros and cons of multimodal GPT-4. If you, in the modern world, because it's trying to guess what it needs to use in the back end to serve your query, sometimes it's going to get it wrong because it may or may not pull in data analysis. It may or may not pull in Dolly 3. And so whilst on average, I think it's better that I can just say, give me an image. That was an interesting like byproduct of what this multimodality does because sometimes it uses it. So do you know what you do in, in the text? In my experience, you're in your prompt. You have to say, using Dolly 3, can you do this? I'd rather click a drop down. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You have to be really specific and um, and tell it how you want it to operate. Um, it, it is curious, some of the decisions it makes sometimes with this new multimodal piece. And actually, I think that's, um, it's, I'm finding it very frustrating. My overall experience with ChatGPT is, I would say, worsening. Uh, we'll come to talk about the the performance of of the app in a moment, but yeah, I think they've they've bundled a lot into it and handed a lot of control over to the to the model, and the model isn't quite getting it right at this moment in time. So, yeah, I'm sure it will improve. I have faith. See, I feel like you. It's probably come across, dear listener, in the uh, podcast so far, but I'm like a bit peed off with ChatGPT and OpenAI at the moment because I was like the developer conference was exciting like these things always are and it's like oh my goodness it's gonna be so cool and then there's like a bunch of things you play with them and they're like so frictionful as to make me go like it breaks all the time in this area in this area in this area effort 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 um it this releasing early approach that OpenAI has always taken, which I think as a user, we need to try and remember that means that it will break a lot and all those other things. Like we're playing with a constant beta near mm. alpha at times. Um, but as people who have jobs to do and are used to using polished software products, it eats up time and some of it's fun. Like I like problem solving some of the stuff sometimes. I'm like, oh, if I say it like this, maybe I'll get this. And that's kind of satisfying. But when I'm in productivity mode, because I've got stuff to get done, that is actually really annoying. But um, why don't we talk about some of the issues? I know we want to talk about text-to-speech and we want to talk a bit about GPTs, but let's talk about some of those issues seeing as we're in them because there's been a few problems since some of these things rolled out, haven't there, Martin? There has, and the, it started off with, within the first couple of days after the developer conference, there was um, downtime, which seemed to kind of extend over about a 48-hour period where it was just very intermittent. Um, you would... You would log in and it would say no. And then 20 minutes later, it would say yes. And then it was up and down and up and down. And it was, that was very frustrating. Um, they said that that was because of a distributed denial of service attack on their servers. And I'm sure they're sticking with that line, but they've subsequently said that they're stopping 
new signups to ChatGPT Plus, which they announced a couple of days ago, uh, because they said that it's been unprecedented demand for for the service, and they need to to scale up the infrastructure. Um, as a you know heavy user, as a power user of the the platform, I am definitely seeing performance issues. GPT four Turbo at times this week has felt anything but turbo. It was supposed to be a big input speed improvement. It was terrible. It was the, the, the words per minute. It was as if I was running the model locally on my machine. The output was so slow to the point where like Raspberry Pi is what it was more like. <laughs> and there's been times where this week, there's been a couple of tasks where I've just wanted something that's that didn't require GPT-4. So I've switched over to GPT-3.5 thinking, well, I know that that's absolutely rapid. The responses on that, the latency is, you know, non-existent really. And even that has been as if someone has been sat typing it out manually at the back end. So I'm really noticing this as a performance issue. The other thing that they've done is they've reduced the amount of images that it will create in any example. So when they first announced it was built in, you could create four images at a time. It will now only output one yesterday. It was only letting me do one at a time. And that's mm-hmm. progressively come down. And they've reduced the input messages. So it was previously 50 messages in a rolling three-hour window that you could have with GPT-4. And that has now come down to 40. Yeah, it's so the image thing is annoyed the hell out of me honestly um i use it a lot for campaign idea generation and rough mock-ups either to brief designers or to inspire a client with a particular creative direction i think we might go and when you're iterating through those in the early days you'd have four images so it was actually quite it was actually much faster because you'd especially if you didn't over prompt it It would give you a line drawing example, like a sort of graphic, a photorealistic example. And then I don't know, something a bit more like a realistic type painting type example. And that would really give you a feel for what's the different type of effects that we could get with this type of campaign idea. But now when you've got to do that image by image, it just takes longer. Then because the reduced amount of messages, at some point, fairly quick, it just goes, yeah we're not going to produce any more images for you for a while. And it's like, well, so let me get this right. You used to give me four. Now you give me one. So now I've got to send you more messages to get more images. And now you're going to tap out before I even get like 10 images. Whereas before that's like two and a half queries worth. And it's like, look, I'm whinging and moaning about this because I'm on a bit of a annoyance with open AI because of all this at the moment. Am I surprised that their back-end systems are struggling with all these new launches and all this new capability? Of course not. That's exactly what I would expect. And if I was a normal, happy-going human being and it wasn't a Friday, then I'd probably be like, give them a couple of weeks, they'll sort it out. But I, I need them to balance giving us additional cool stuff with making sure the stuff that they actually gave us already still works well. Hmm. Because I rely on it. Do you? I mean, do you rely oh, on it? I, I do. Yeah, 100%. It, it- they, they launched the product. It was so reliable and consistent that it became part of my workflow. If we think about um, the, the, that concept of centaurs and cyborgs, you know, I was very much in the cyborg mode. It was fully integrated into my, my day-to-day workflow. And now I'm finding that I'm just hitting these, these barriers and 
yeah, it is. Um, it is a frustrating experience. Uh, I think they're looking at possibly increasing the cost or having a two tier pricing system as well. So there was, um, I think on the, the open AI discord, I believe there was a, a survey that was going around asking people, would they be prepared to pay more for another tier, which would give you, you know, more limits, better limits, basically. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad they're having that conversation. I've spoken with power users, and I think they'd pay more. I think the, they feel the value they get for twenty dollars a month is massively outsized to the cost. And of course, like most of us, they're going to pay as little as they can. Of course, because they're not going to go. Oh, by the way, here have more of my money. Um, but I would pay forty, fifty dollars a month. I think to have the reliability improved and the limits removed. Yeah, agreed. Um, let's talk text speech modal because i know you think that's pretty cool um what have your thoughts been on that text to speech capability i really like it so they've made it available via api it's incredibly easy to to plug into i'm not a developer but i just asked chat gpt to make me a little app that allowed me to to interface with it i gave it the api documentation as part of the prompt literally went onto the documentation page on the website, control A, control C, control V into the chat window and said, make me a little app that I can run on my desktop um, that will do this using Python with a GUI. So I got a graphical user interface and now I have an app that does it. You get six voices. I think it's six at this stage. Uh, there's one British voice in the mix um, and, and five American. They sound good. There's two, um, two quality outputs. So you've got a standard and a HD. The, the HD has a bit more variation, a little bit more emotion in it. Isn't on the same level as Eleven Labs. The Eleven Labs voices are still the best quality with the most emotional range, but it's considerably cheaper on the API requests, and the latency is very good. So it's, it's very quick. And you know what? It's it's really good enough for for most people's applications. Yeah, I'm. This is one of those where now, in a very bipolar way, I'm going to swing to the other side where I'm like, I love the fact that OpenAI released this through their mobile app not that long ago. Right, you could speak to the app and it would speak back to you in a very Star Trek computer style. My goodness, this is cool. And then in the blink of an eye, they make it available to developers, and I think that's actually awesome. And the stuff you did with it and sent me was so cool. Um, just to stress for people who are new listeners, Martin is not a developer. He is an exceptional problem solver and thinker. So he gets he gets in with ChatGPT and collaborates to build these software. But but you're not you're not a developer. You don't have any developer training. Not at all. But working with ChatGPT and you know probably half a day or a day, you've got this thing up and running. And I think it's. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how our interaction with computers changes over the next 12 to 24 months. You know, we've got the, the launch of the Humane AI pin this week or last week. I think um, first time we had any real details about how it works. It, I don't think it's going to catch on, if I'm really honest. No. Um, 
but it's interesting for those that don't know the humane ai pin is like a like a, it almost looks like a badge that you wear on your shirt it's got a camera it's got a mic um, it's got a speaker and what they're trying to do is create a system by which you can do quite a few things you'd want to do in your life that you would usually use your phone for but you don't need a phone so you want to make a call you just tell it you want to make a call you want it to summarize your emails you want it to write your emails and do some replies for you while you dictate or do all of that my favorite application was actually translation in real time if you're having a conversation with someone else you tell it i'm speaking with my friend who's spanish when i speak translate me into spanish when they speak translate what they say to me into english that was pretty cool um the launch video was not as exciting as it could have been um but that's another example of this kind of similar technology right where you speak to something rather than typing and it speaks back rather than you reading there's People are doing some really interesting things with the GPT-4 vision capabilities. Mm. Or if we've, yeah, have you seen some of this? What have you seen? Yeah, so um, there was the 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 video clip of uh, Messi uh, dribbling, uh, and they did real time uh, translation. And oh, no, it was a real time commentary, wasn't it? And Chat yeah. GPT for non football fans, um, he was dribbling a football rather than dribbling on his own face. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Imagine the commentary of that. <laughs> oh, that one's going to drift off his chin if he's not careful. Uh, yeah, so it was a, it was Leo Messi dribbling down the the I think it was the right wing, and uh, ChatGPT was the vision. I think they'd programmed it so it was looking at one frame in ten or something like that, and then describing the scene and and it was doing that um, throughout, and it ended up putting this this actually quite decent audio commentary together. I mean, certainly for a first blast, it was very good. Um, you know, is it going to replace Martin Tyler on Sky Sports? Absolutely not. But, you know, for for something that someone rustled up in their office, you know, in a few hours, it was pretty impressive. What have you what have you seen? Yeah, I thought that was a good proof of concept. I think where I'm coming at this from is some of the tests where people in essence are using GPT for vision as a mechanism for computers to understand what's on a screen and then take actions. So let's imagine that I want to book a holiday in order to be able to tell a computer, go book me a holiday to Argentina to go see Leo Messi um, and his family. Not that he lives there, of course, because he's doing some play football there at the moment, but there you go. Um, that's a very complicated process that a computer would need to go through we need to be able to browse to a website but need to understand the context of what's on that website and yes it could do it through html and css understanding which to be honest is probably still the best way to do it at least from my very uh, naive untechnical perspective but i was interested to see people using the vision capability as a mechanism of in essence taking a picture of that site which gpt4 vision can interpret it knows what where the buttons are it can read the text and then creating agents mm. off the back of that and so i'm like ever thinking about the days when i sit here and the keyboard i'm using it less i'm speaking more to the computer and it's doing things based on what i ask and again i think open ai providing access to not only text to speech and speech to text a lot of which we've had a while with, through whisper but also gpt4 vision because i think all these multimodal things are going to allow people to create really interesting use cases. And I think products and tools will pop up that we just can't imagine 
would be useful. And then people are just have this epiphany where they're like, wait a minute, if the computer can see and the computer can hear and the computer can speak, what can I now get it to do? And the computer can take action, right? Like that's absolutely that's the 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 additional part of that uh piece yeah i saw the one um there was one bit of research that found that gpt for vision with iphone screenshots was able to successfully complete tasks and actions on the iphone about 75 percent of the time so it's just the start of this whole process isn't it i and again i think that bit is actually kind of critical because something that gets it wrong 25% of the time is actually not that useful. Yeah, usable. that's absolutely trash, really. It's like, just turn up to Heathrow Airport, looking forward to my <laughs> holiday, and the flight hasn't been booked after all. It just reported that it has because it hallucinated having done it, or it's booked me a flight, uh, and I'm not going to, uh, I don't know, Argentina, I'm going to Albania or whatever because it just completely... Um, it, it understood all of the tasks apart from the Argentina part, it got slightly wrong, which is not going to hold water. And I guess brings us full circle to the start of this conversation, which is lots of these capabilities have immense potential, but the stuff that goes wrong with them yet is still large enough in a lot of cases that human in the loop in so many aspects is really important. Mm. And until some of that improves, their independence of these tools is going to be limited. Hundred percent. Just on the human computer interface point, I had an interesting experience this week with my two and a half year old when at the breakfast table he uh he, he's been using um the smart speaker whose name I will not say, but he's been asking it to play songs regularly, saying, Amazon, you know, play this song. And he's been he turned around to it the other day and and said the trigger word and then asked a question, which he's not done before. He's always just asked it to um, to play, to, to do an action. But it was one of those questions that it's not geared up for. But I thought, oh, this is interesting. We could do it with um, the GPT-4 voice interaction. So we fired it up at the, at the breakfast table and we burned through our questions, our, our 40 questions. Uh, message limit with him just going back and forth asking questions uh, and it was you know it was everything from why is water cold to uh why is ketchup <laughs> well that's very philosophical <laughs> uh, but we ended up having you know he was going on about animals and dinosaurs and, and all sorts so it was a, a real wide-ranging discussion and it there was a real ebb and flow to the conversation he he was treating it like a, like a person. Um, and I thought, wow, at two and a half years old, his experience of interfacing with computers is, is going to be so different. And fast forward, he's going to, it's just going to be so intuitive for him that, you know, tablets, the idea that when we see toddlers playing on tablets now, um, people have gone, oh my God, they're just picking up so quickly. This generation is going to be talking to computers, going to be second nature to them. Yeah. It's, um, I think that's spot on. Bill Goats um, wrote a blog this week, basically on the same theme that we're discussing now, like how people interact with computers has not changed that much. And since we moved from DOS-based coding type interfaces into Windows-y type click-on stuff yeah. interfaces, and actually the click-on stuff interface is now best part of 30 years old, something like that. 
um, but it hasn't really moved on. And this could be the moment that it does. This is probably a bit too pontification central for most marketers listening, but that is obviously going to fundamentally change how people access information, how they search for stuff, how they buy stuff. Um, so a lot of the go-to-market strategies that we use right now, like SEO, even like websites. Yeah. Will we have websites? If we do, how will who will interact with them? Agents or us or both? Or that's going to be a really interesting thing to see how that plays out over time. It could, it could change radically. I think just thinking about this out loud, people changing their behavior actually takes quite a long time. So this is unlikely to be a tomorrow. We are in a speak to computer world. It's mm. going to be like, oh, over 10 years, people really got used to speaking with computers over time. And before they really knew it, they were like, oh, I don't use my keyboard that much anymore. And I think it's going to be more like that than brilliant. I don't have to use my keyboard ever again. I'm throwing it in the trash tomorrow. Today, I'm a keyboard user tomorrow. Never again. Like it's going to be slow, isn't it? It is. I do hate my keyboard, though. Do I, I'm actually using um a mixture of audio pen and another text to speech tool and i'm dictating 80 percent of my emails at this point and i'm finding it a real productivity boost as a complete aside so um so i'm trying that i'm ready for the keyboardless future martin just tell me what a, what we got to do to make it happen um right is there anything else oh if is there anything else? Yeah, just a small matter of GPTs. We've sort of left yeah, we the can... most potentially exciting, but also controversial aspect yeah. until the very end. Mm. GPTs. Tell us, for the listeners who are maybe not so nerdy about this stuff, um, tell us what GPTs are. So GPTs are the consumer-facing interface for creating your own specialized assistance. And, and if you're a developer, you can use the API and create assistance. And if you're uh, just a consumer using ChatGPT, you can build your own uh, specialist GPT in, uh, in ChatGPT. And they're made up of three components. There's the instruction, which is basically the system prompt, which primes the GPT to play a particular role. And this is where you tell it how it should operate. Then you've got knowledge. Knowledge is information that you can provide. So it could be uh, in the example that Sam Altman gave at the demo day, he uploaded a lecture and it was uh, the, the transcript from a lecture that he delivered about building and growing and scaling startups. So it, that was the kind of knowledge that he'd implanted in it. But this could be proprietary knowledge. It could be it could be speeches, lectures, it could be particular data sets, whatever. You're going to give it some knowledge that it doesn't have or it might have in its training set, but you want to make that kind of uh, front and center in its, uh, in its interactions with the user. So you've got instructions, knowledge, and the final thing is actions. And actions are the thing that it can do. A, f a while ago, OpenAI announced a thing called function calling. And function calling enables you to connect external software using APIs with ChatGPT. So now you can do that in this interface and you can make your, your GPT, your ChatGPT assistant, as it were, connect to external tools and perform actions based on 
the interaction that you have with someone. As well as that, you can also turn on, uh, what, what can you turn on? You can turn on all of the tools, can't you? You can turn on uh, code interpreter and you can turn on Dali. Um, so it can web browsing, uh, yeah, web browsing as well, or you can turn them off. If you're building the app, you can choose which ones are available and which ones are, are not available. And then you can publish it and you can make it public to the world, or you can have it just private and have it be an assistant to you. And in some respects, it's, it's pretty similar to, um, if you've got like a prompt library or you operate like me and you have bookmarked conversations that you go back and edit for a particular tasks. It's a bit like that. You can create your own, uh, GPTs that are primed to do a particular task and you can actually in the chat GPT window on both desktop and on mobile, you can now have them saved in the sidebar for quick access. So if you're, for instance, putting together a podcast and you want to have a GPT that is specialized at creating show notes or writing a social media content and giving you a promotion strategy for each episode, you could have that there all the time, stick in your rough notes from the, from the show, and then it will give you nice formatted show notes and a few tweets and, and what have you. And there's a whole app playground as well, not pla app playground, sorry. There's a whole app store where you can go and browse public GPTs. Yeah, it's going to be, I think when this was all launched, thank you for that. <laughs> there you are, listeners. Now you know what GPTs are. Um, when this was launched, I think there was a lot of excitement. There was going to be a GPT store. There was loads of people on social going, this is where the next millionaires are being made. Yeah, like, go build your GPT. That's the bit that I didn't mention. It was the revenue share. They announced that at some point in the near future, there will be a revenue share for the most popular used GPTs. Yeah. And I think all of that makes sense. And people were like, oh, I've got to get in there. I've got to build a GPT. Um, the store's not live yet uh, at the moment. You can access other people's GPTs because when you build one, it can be just for you. It can be anybody with the link or it can be like super public, right? Um, but so at the moment you can share that. So you can go play with other people's GPTs, but there's no store or anything to be able to go searching for GPTs, at least not on ChatGPT, although of course those things have already sprung up. And I think what people have learned, I don't know what you think, Martin, but what I've seen people talking about a lot is they mostly act a bit like ChatGPT and you can sort of train them on your own materials and stuff, but mm, it doesn't always work that well. The function calling is kind of cool, but it appears to be quite buggy. Um, I use the Zapier um, GPT. We talked about this off air. There's an example, which is like a calendar plugin. It's like calendar GPT. And you say things to it like, what's on my schedule tomorrow? Made it up. I asked it, what's on the schedule tomorrow? Pulled a load. It did pull a load of things from my, from my schedule from a day three months ago. And I said, I think you might be wrong. They're like, yeah, we are wrong. Um, in fact, your schedule's empty. And I'm like, no, I've got four meetings tomorrow. And they're like, yeah, you don't. Your schedule's empty. And I'm like, I think I know what's in my calendar, having looked at it. So, and, and getting it set up was really buggy. So, I think there's an element of flatter to deceive here again in that it's got huge potential. How to really realize that we're not there yet. So in terms of like 
the danger of this being another plugin store debacle was like when plugins came to chat you just like oh my goodness the plugin universe make your next million building plugins on the plugin store and now this is the new version of that plugin store sucked for a number of reasons and i do worry that gpt's and gpt store is not where it needs to be to really take off that being said we have seen some pretty cool initial examples haven't we martin yeah the one that you sent the convert anything example was amazing and it's a, a gpt where you can upload a file so let's say uh, an image PNG, and you can ask it to convert that to a JPEG. But it won't just do that with that kind of simple task. It will do that with anything. Uh, and you can throw pretty much any file type into it, and it will uh, have a crack at uh, turning it from one format into another. It did fail slightly. I uh, threw in a screenshot of a, it was a text-based table with some information in it, and it was a, a just a PNG. And I threw that into it and said, uh, turn this into a, into a word doc. And it tried to use OCR to extract the text, uh, but it failed. And then just gave me a word doc with the image image in it, just em embedded in the word doc. So it's, it's, you know, it kind of did it sort of. I'm even, I'm even surprised it did as well there as it, as it did honestly um when i started playing with it and i sent it to you i was like oh cool png to jpeg i was like oh uh, m4a to mp3 like yeah probably i'd have to download a piece of software or use some online tool to do that and now i've just got one thing that i can just go convert this to this and that seemed kind of kind of interesting um so that was i think the way that i assume this is all being driven by code interpreter advanced data analysis python stuff being able to do some of this in the background i don't know if it's doing um custom function calling or not but but it was definitely an example of something actually usable that doesn't break that often that i could see myself using day to day i think a lot of the other examples i've seen are at, at best they're kind of skins of chat gpt a little bit like what we've seen emerge in a number of other areas anyway like there's like a contract writer gpt and a chef gpt um there i heard paul reutzer from the um the ai marketing institute talking about potentially creating a gpt that will produce your ai policy for you to go on your website based on asking you a bunch of questions about how you intend to use ai and then writing up your policy for you and i i think some of those could be really useful and some of them are just not going to be that useful because they're just basically, you could probably ask ChatGPT as is without having to have a custom GPT. I'm definitely finding that there are probably opportunities for me to create GPTs for me or my team that are based on stuff that we have to do that probably no one else would be that interested in, but is useful. As an example, before this podcast, we transitioned some of the prompts we use to help us write the scripts for these podcasts to create a quick GPT that does it, which we can now share, which is like a shared tool bot thing that we can throw stories at and it will write scripts for us. So I can see some definite applications there. I'm still struggling to see what applications people are going to make that are going to be like number one on the app store, one million uses a day. The, um, the developer day example where they did a deep dive into the product was, was pretty interesting, just novel in terms of how they, they, 
plugged it all together. And what they'd done is they'd connected it to Spotify and asked it to basically be a kind of playlist creator based on a mood and a vibe that you would input. And they took a photo of themselves. It was two developers on stage. They took a photo of themselves kind of you know, high-fiving or whatever it was and then said, what's this mood? And it came up with a, a vibe and said, based on this photo, so it used GPT-4 Vision to interpret, that this is the kind of playlist that I would put together. And then they said, great, put that together. And it goes on Spotify and kind of pulls together this, this playlist. They actually give it uh, the name of an artist to put into the playlist as well, and it does that. And then they say, now play it. And it plays it in their Spotify account. It creates the playlist in their Spotify account uh, and starts playing it. It also creates a playlist album cover using Dali. So that goes into it as well. And then they'd connected it to their Philip, Philips Hue lighting and said, set the scene. And it triggered the, the, the lighting for the, the playlist in the living room as well. So all through just chatting with ChatGPT, they created a custom playlist, uh, got it playing on their, their speakers and then had a custom hue lighting mood setting as well yeah that's quite cool that's worth stressing that it's quite easy to build a gpt because chat gpt guides you through the process so you kind of tell it in natural language what you want and then it tries to figure out how to make that work for you which is brilliant but it doesn't help at all for custom actions which are still really complicated api type calls which i'm sure it could help with but it certainly not easy to do out the box. Um, the other thing reflecting on that Spotify example is it's kind of cool, but what problem does that solve? It's like I wasn't wandering around going, God, if my Spotify playlist would just see that everyone in the room's a bit depressed and play the most depressing songs it can find <laughs> and then put a really depressing album cover on it, my life would be complete. It's like, no. So it's like, well, that was what, what are the problems that we want to solve with this stuff? That was one of the. In their defense, they said, look, this is quite kind of frivolous. It's not, you know, this isn't a serious, but we want to show you the potential of how you can link things together and, and what have you. Um, I think that is one of the, the big challenges here is that actually finding what is the, what is the problem that they're solving? There was another session that if you watch the breakout sessions from developer day, they talk about how they think about product and research and on the product side. Um, they said that the product manager of, of from ChatGPT was saying, normally you would talk about what problem are we trying to solve, but we don't really do that with, with ChatGPT. We don't start with the problem. We just kind of start with what can the model do and then just try and make that accessible in a way that is um, like useful to people and because people mm. are still figuring this out. So I think there's a, there's a tacit acknowledgement from ChatGPT GPT team where they're saying, we're not really solving for a problem. We're putting together a bunch of building blocks and throwing it over to you. And I think that's fine because in essence, they're the platform mm. and our job as users or would be, I'm going to put inverted commas developers, like maybe proper developers, but also because you don't need to be a developer necessarily to build a GPT, any old folk to go. I wish I need this problem solved. 
I'm going to figure out a way ChatGPT can do it for me. And I, and I think to bring us back full circle, I think that's why the most obvious things I'm seeing at the moment is me and my team looking at a thing we'd want to be able to do on a reasonably frequent basis and then going, can we create a GPT for that that halves the amount of time it takes or gets us halfway into the process instantly because it can do X, Y, Z? Um, for example, I could imagine creating a Biostrata blog GPT that knows the style of our blog post because it's been fed 20 of them, so it knows how to write in our style um, with maybe a set of instructions that are probably true for all blog posts, like the type of length we want them to be, and maybe even a process where we always want an outline first that we review and approve, and then it writes the blog. Like That would save quite a lot of time internally, but it would be very specific to Biostrata. Like, no one else wants their blog to be in Biostrata's style, right? Um, but that would be really helpful, and I could absolutely imagine that. Like, we should definitely set up a transcript to show notes GPT or even a podcast processing GPT for our podcast mm. just to make it easier to go to not have to prompt to just copy paste the transcript and it already knows it's going to give three outputs show notes um social media posts and I don't know whatever like the email that you that we want to send out and then you could probably get to the point through function calling that you, or Zapier you might be able to connect it to enough tools that actually pushes some of that material straight away where it needs to go I think then it starts to get quite cool. I guess if you can think of applications that you have that other people might need, but that would be quite hard for them to build themselves, you might be able to get yourself up on the top of that GPT leaderboard when it launches. Well, that leads to an interesting segue onto the next story, which is uh, a bunch of announcements from Microsoft this week at their Ignite conference. So they announced uh, a bunch of updates specifically to Microsoft Copilot. And one of the things that I think is really worth zoning in on with this is a new tool called Copilot Studio. Now we can talk about the wider announcement in a moment, but Microsoft Copilot Studio uh, is a Zapier-like interface, a drag-and-drop interface, uh, a no-code customization solution, basically, that allows people to, to build their own co-pilot integrations across the enterprise. And it's a really interesting product launch from Microsoft because all of this is powered by GPT-4 under the hood. And if I just give you a quick summary of how it actually works, you start off with an inference, a user input into Copilot, your prompt basically. And then there is this orchestration layer that Microsoft has built, which tries to interpret what you've asked and tries to figure out what it needs to do, what action it needs to, to trigger, basically. Where does it need to route the query? Whether it's the HR system, the finance system, the CRM, whatever it will maybe, then the query is routed to that particular place, HR, CRM, whatever it is, um, and collects the relevant data. It's compiled and then pushed back into GPT-4, which does what GPT-4 does and gives you a response in natural language. 
it integrates with over 1,100 products, uh, including Adobe, Zendesk, SAP, and a bunch of other tools as well, real enterprise-level tech. However, when watching the product announcement for this, I couldn't help but think that there is a whole new category of job which is going to be required, which takes me back to why I think this is an interesting segue from the previous story. And that is what you were describing with GPTs and being able to create all of these interesting tools with function calling and what have you requires a certain element of kind of AI architecture. You need to be able to think about system builds and how you connect knowledge, instructions, and actions to enable you to create a good GPT. And watching this co-pilot presentation, I was thinking the same thing. We are on the verge of a whole new category of job role coming out, which I think is AI agent or AI assistant architect, uh, where effectively you are designing, managing, and building these AI-powered assistants and connecting them all together. Because doing that role needs such a strong knowledge of, well, there's a technical side. You need to understand functions and APIs and that sort of thing. You've got to be something of a prompt engineer as well. Um, and then you've got to be a, a good systems designer, understanding user interface. There's a whole lot that goes into to creating something that's good and functional. And that's exactly, even though Copilot Studio is a no-code, ostensibly it's a no-code solution, right? You're not going to be able to create anything good with it without being incredibly technical. Um, as it happens, I think if you're a Microsoft reseller or an IT managed service provider, if you're not looking at this as the next revenue stream, as a big part of your ongoing consultancy going forward, you should be because companies are going to need this from you without doubt. But, uh, mm. but yeah, I, I was thinking I couldn't help watch this product launch, think about GPTs and think this is a whole new category of, of job role. I agree. I, I know the hope is that prompt engineering and systems thinking will be less required because the language models, the bots we're interfacing with will do that thinking for us and maybe ask us the right questions and then we'll answer them, but, and then it will think it through for us. But I think we're a ways away from that. And I, I really agree with your assessment. I, cause I, cause we were playing with building tools, right. And you built, um, the text to speech. And so I went and tried to see how long would it take me to build a web based app for transcription just using whisper and it took me about two and a half hours but when i was doing it i really reflected on i use bubble and bubble is a no code stroke low code tool and for the tool i was building it was a no code tool but the way it works is still how software works right databases for information pulling things in and out taking certain actions based on clicks so you really had to be able to think in terms of system processes moving data around to different places and I think if your brain works that way, it's probably quite intuitive. But if it doesn't, it's really, really hard. Like I spent, I could have built that tool in half an hour if I really knew what I was doing. I spent 45 minutes just trying to get it to show the transcript because it wasn't obvious to me how to pull this transcript out of the database I'd set up 
and have it display in a certain text box that, box that I built, which should have been so easy, but you just need to know how computers, how software works, how, in inverted commas, how computers think moving information around. So I, I think you're absolutely right. I think we'll see the AI architecture version of that for sure. Do you know what my favorite thing is? This shows the difference between you and me. My favorite thing about the um, Microsoft um, announcement was they've got this Hey Gen like avatar tool now. Um, so basically, it's a speaking, moving version created based on, I think, just based on a single image. I'd have to dive a bit deeper into that. And it's just, um, you know, it's not available yet. But basically, you can create these avatars that speak and move using uh, Azure's AI's speech-to-text avatar feature, which is powered by OpenAI, as Martin was saying. Um, and you can imagine creating videos for your website where you give it an image, you write a script, and then it's you speaking those in the video, but it's not really you. Um, you could imagine doing prospecting outreach where you send individual videos to each prospect. But they're not really you either. They're all like basically deep fakes of you. Um, and we saw an interesting version of Hey Gen um, that offers this type of service as well. And Hey Gen's are better. So if you want to go search for stuff, H-E-Y-G-E-N avatars, go and look those up. Obviously, look up the Microsoft version as well. What I took away from it, Martin, is now there's not just one game in town. And whenever there's not one game in town, the speed that everybody feels they need to move out to improve their product uh, increases exponentially. And so... Again, I think we're getting so close to a moment when those deep fake driven avatars are being used in so many customer service, marketing and sales use cases, and they'll look pretty good and be somewhat reliable. And then soon they'll be indistinguishable. Yeah. And what does that mean? There was a, a story this week, actually, that said AI researchers are now at the point where they're struggling to differentiate real from fake. And, but, and that should give us all pause for thought because what does that mean like as humans do we end up in the point where we're like wow so the only thing i can really trust is my own eyes um and there are loads of things about um all the cognitive biases and stuff that we have that mean you probably can't trust your own eyes either but in at least when you're consuming media online what videos will be real what images will be ready real? what text will have been created by humans and what not like that is going to be a different world to be in isn't it it is. And um, I feel like I, I might be skipping ahead in some of the stories, but I think this is a relevant point to jump in to talk about uh, YouTube's responsible AI evolution. Let's do it. We've got about 10 minutes more. We've got to respect our audience's time, Martin. So we're going to do as many stories as we can in the next 10 minutes. And we're going to start with YouTube. Right. So YouTube is taking a measured approach uh, against generative AI. Obviously, lots of people are now submitting content to YouTube that has some generative AI in it, whether it's audio, images, video, what have you. So they're introducing plans to enforce mandatory disclosures, basically, from creators uh, that are using AI, particularly where AI has been used to generate realistic content. Um, so this will involve a labeling system and it will involve alerting viewers to synthetic content, particularly around uh, sensitive topics such as health and uh, elections. So I'm just going to rattle through a summary of the announcements, really. So they've got 
disclosure requirements, which we've already mentioned. YouTube uh, will add labels to the content, letting people know that it's altered or synthetic. There is also a removal request process where individuals can request the removal of AI-generated content that uses their likeness without consent. Um, there is some music content regulation where music partners can request the removal of AI-generated music that mimics an artist's voice. Uh, YouTube will continue to enhance AI-driven content moderation to detect and address policy violations. And they're introducing some adversarial testing. So they're going to conduct adversarial testing to anticipate and prevent misuse of AI tools. So this is part of their uh, ongoing uh, investment into AI moderation. Um, they're introducing some, uh, they're basically playing AIs off against each other. Uh, they're rolling out, if you are a creator, um, they're going to be rolling out some education to educate the the creators about these requirements like what are these disclosures and i think this is going to have an impact on marketers right because lots of marketers will be using ai for voiceovers for video for images and i wonder at what level the disclosures will kind of settle where we'll have to say what is and isn't dis disclosed if i use an ai voiceover on a corporate video maybe like a just a product video and I've used an AI voiceover that doesn't seem particularly risky or harmful to people. If I use an 11 labs voice, do I need to disclose that seems unlikely. So, but obviously if I'm doing something with, uh, you know, healthcare or elections and I'm using AI generated images and voices, then it would make sense as a much greater risk to, to society. But yeah, that's a, a new disclosure that's coming out a uh, requirement from, from YouTube. Yeah, I think that's going to be extremely complex. I'll be interested to see how that gets administered, like you said. Right, we're going to go through. We're rapid firing it, Martin. I've got a couple of stories I'm going to do. And then if you can crack through a couple of stories. So first one for me is uh, Google postpones the launch of Gemini AI. So for those of you who listen to the podcast, you'll know that we're excited about Google's Gemini because it's trying to be the main competition against GPT-4 from OpenAI. And I think the thing we're most excited about is so many people launch models, but none of them get near GPT-4. And so the I, Martin has a few use cases he loves for Claude. I love Claude as well. But in general, the workhorse is GPT-4 and ChatGPT. What we need is another GPT-4 level model to continue to drive development and innovation in this in this area. So we thought... Gemini would come out the end of this year. It's now been delayed and the reports are this is because it's not as good as GPT-4 yet, uh, which would be a significant issue because you'd have to ask why launch it if it's not. And I think that's the question they asked internally and that's why they didn't launch it. So then the question is really how long are we going to have to wait? Because what's it going to take to make those improvements? No one knows. So if you're waiting on Gemini like we are, and you were excited about it, be a bit less excited because it's going to take a little while to come. The other story I was going to talk through was just quickly um, Google's search generative experience, which we've talked about a few times, which has been available in the US, is now being rolled out to 120 other countries. Um, why is this significant for marketers? Because we've been talking a little bit about what does the SGE, search generative experience, mean for marketers doing SEO? And if Google is answering questions and 
providing insights and making product recommendations right at the top of the screen through the SGE rather than pushing people towards organic links. How's that going to change how we do SEO? The fact that it's now been rolled out to 120 other countries tells us this is coming mainstream and we're going to have to deal with this sooner or later and we're going to have to really see how this impacts the performance of our websites and our SEO and our content marketing efforts. Martin? Uh, Sticking with uh, Google and their announcements, they have, uh, through YouTube actually, announced Melodic AI. And this was a a blog post that the YouTube team have published, which is a collaboration with YouTube and Google DeepMind. And they've unveiled an array of AI-driven music experiments, and they are pretty cool. Uh, I would recommend people go on to the blog and uh, listen to, to some of the tracks. They've created an AI where you can basically hum a tune and then with a written prompt, describe what you want that to do. So you can turn it into a saxophone solo and it will turn your hummed tune into a saxophone solo and you can stick that into a track. So you can imagine what people are going to be able to do. If you're a musician or you're a producer, you're going to be able to create tracks uh, by tapping on a table and turning it into proper drum solos and what have you. Uh, there's other ones as well where you can just type in uh, a scene. Maybe you've got a bit of footage and you want to to type in a, a description of the type of music you want and it will create that track. That's called Dream Track for Shorts. So that's going to be released for, for YouTube Shorts. Now, they've launched this in collaboration with uh, artists such as Charlie Puth and T-Pain. I can't say I know who Charlie is. But yeah, basically a bunch of AI-powered musical tools that producers and creators are going to have at their disposal, and they look really cool. And while we're on the subject of AI audio, a big story this week uh, came out of Stability AI. Uh, The head of audio at Stability AI, uh, the company that produced Stable Diffusion and ClipDrop and all of these tools that we we love. Uh, his name is Ed Newton-Rex, head of audio, and he stepped down from his role this week amid concerns over Stability's use of copyrighted content to train models without consent. Um, so he described the practice as being exploitative, and he wrote quite a long uh, tweet basically articulating his position and describing that the, the tension amongst people within the industry. This is someone who loves audio. This is why he's in uh, the role of head of audio. He's someone that's passionate about this as a medium, but he can see that creators and artists are being exploited and will be uh left behind. Uh, He doesn't agree with the the definition of fair use. He thinks that's, um, yeah, it's not the way that the industry should be going. So yeah, that was a big shake Like We can train our models based on your stuff without paying you because we consider that fair Mm -hmm. use. And I think some of his posts imply that that mindset is is the prevailing mindset in all of these generative AI companies. And I think I would have umbrage as Mm -hmm. well with that. Um, so another cool thing was Runway announcing their motion brush. So, uh, people on the podcast, um, listeners, you'll know, we love Runway. It's pretty cool. Does loads of text to video generation stuff. 
And the latest iteration of the tool lets you input a static image and then taking a like a brush like interface, you can like color in an aspect of the image that you want to move and it will only move that part of the image. So it's not available yet. And the demo videos for all this stuff always makes it look cool. And then when Mike and I try and actually get anything usable out of it, it's almost impossible for us. Um, I guess maybe more a limitation of us or maybe the amount of time and effort you need to put in to actually get something awesome. But if it's usable, I think it could actually have some really interesting applications beyond what we can do right now, like animating a, an area of a chart. Like if you're doing a report to your, you know, to your team, um, that could be quite interesting to make things a bit more engaging. You could... Um, there's suggestions you might be able to take things like photography like an old family photo and have the people wave um which would be kind of interesting and see how well that works um so i think it'd be interesting to see how people play with this versus um using static images or just straight on text video generation and whether that then cascades for us as marketers into applications in terms of what might have been a static social media image banner now becomes a moving one because it's so easy to animate certain aspects with quite a lot of fine control in terms of what those aspects are and a lot more of those types of more video-y type things on websites versus just static images. Um, so it could be quite cool. Yeah, looking forward to actually getting hands-on with that and seeing if I can get something useful, which I almost certainly won't be able to. Uh, <laughs> next up, OpenAI seeks a collaborative future with data partnerships. So this is OpenAI basically saying we're training up new models, and we need more data. We need access to more proprietary data or hard to access data. Uh, so if you have that, you can go to them and say, hey, here's a bunch of data that you can access. So this is particularly interesting, I think, if you're in maybe an institution like a museum or a library where you say, actually, we think we've got a collection here that we could give over uh, and, and help train the model and expand the domain knowledge of, let's say, GPT-5, which they have spoke about, um, they are now training. Um, so if you're at a museum and you've got a specialist collection, you could hand that over. Now, they said that in terms of being able to handle the information that is provided, they can basically deal with that. They could, they've got really state-of-the-art technology to, to do uh, image and handwriting recognition from documents and GPT-4 can interpret photos of things. So there's, they'll deal with the collection, but if you've got a collection, you can give it to them. There are two ways that you can provide. Uh, you can contribute to an open source data set for public use and training open source models, or for providing data sets to train proprietary models uh, with strict data sensitivity and access controls. Things like GPT-5, for instance. So if you're interested in that, uh, and that sounds like something that your organization could contribute to, Get in touch with OpenAI about their OpenAI data partnership. Cracking stuff. Well, Martin, we're now near the, uh, well over the hour mark. So I think we'll let our friendly listeners go about their day. Um, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this. Please subscribe if you haven't already and tell the other marketers you know who you think might benefit from this. Hey, go check that out. Maybe they should subscribe too. Um, I will look forward to catching up with you on, on our next episode, Martin. Thanks very much. Cheers. See you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to Artificially Intelligent Marketing. To stay on top of the latest trends, tips, and tools in the world of marketing AI, be sure to subscribe. We look forward to seeing you again next week.